Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome to The Den. On today's episode, we're joined by Steve Rickman. Steve has spent the last 40 years helping bridge the gap between law enforcement and communities across the country. As the executive director of the Department of Justice's Weed and Seed program, he created police community partnerships in more than 300 cities. Steve's background in analysis and policymaking has shared his vision for reform as a technical advisor to the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and he currently uses his over 40 years of experience to advise police leadership across the country on policies, and strengthening police community relationships. I'll let him share the story of how he got there. I'm 71 years old now. But I would I mentioned that I grew up in, in, in Washington, D.C. in the 50s and the 60s. And uh, I'm talking about my experience with law enforcement. It was mixed. I, would, I played baseball. I played against teams that were managed and coached by you know police officers. It's interesting, I guess, my father, who was not a fan of police, he was from Chicago. He, I guess internally, he would always, you know, sort of hint that they were not, <laughs> they're not necessarily good guys. We call them the police. But I had neighbors who were police officers. They were their kids and I went over their houses. So, I mean, they weren't, they were monsters to me. But you know, as a teenager, I had my encounters. Being, being a, a black male in DC, it's hard not to, especially when I started driving. That's when I first started having encounters with them. I ended up get, being taken into custody. I wasn't arrested four times, but I was taken into custody, I think, four times. I was actually arrested once. I guess the one that I remember the most was um, I was dressed in some American flag pants, and I had a wild, incredibly crazy push. I was like, at the time, about 17 years old and out of my mind. And you know, this was the hippie era and all that stuff, and I was uh, rebelling like everybody else. And my father let me use the family car. I just started driving. And I, he told me, be careful, Steve. <laughs> Whatever you do, I don't want you to get any violations. You know, if you do, you're going to be, you know, grounded. And so I'm driving. I, I pull up to a stop sign. I stop at stop sign. I see a police officer over there on the corner, their car, the squad car. So I was being executed. But what it didn't matter. He still pulls up behind me, pulls me over. And claims that I, you know, that I didn't stop long enough at the stop sign. I went berserk. <laughs> All I could think about was my dad taking that car away from me. 
I screamed at them. I called them names. I called them a pig. I just went off. And he sat there and he listened to me very calmly, didn't react. And he said, young man, just wait right here one second. And I'm thinking I'm making some headway. He goes back to his car, gets on the radio. And about five minutes later, a paddy wagon shows up. And these two huge officers get out, pick me up and throw me in the paddy wagon and take me to the substation. Okay, so they get me to the substation. They take me downstairs. And I'm sitting there. And so I'm scared, but I, I cannot make my phone calls. I need to call, you know, need to call my mom or call somebody. I said, can I call my mom? And the guy looked, the officer looked at me and said, son, you watch too much television. <laughs> you know, <okay? laughs> he talked about your phone call. You watch too much television. Then he proceeds to go back and he comes back. He leaves for a second. He comes back and he has his baton, but he has a towel wrapped on it. And then he starts tapping my ribs, not very hard, but hard enough for me to feel it. And says, now, who's a pig now, young man? <laughs> who's a pig now? What do you have to say now? <laughs> so he toyed with me for a while, took me up to lockup. I sat in the lockup for about an hour. At this point, I was like, you know, feeling terrible, scared. He comes and gets me, says, I guess you can call your mom now. So I call my mom. My mom shows up, and of course, she's screaming and yelling. And the officer is explaining to him, well, well, ma'am, he called me all these names. He was disrespectful. He was this. He was that. And so my mom looks at me and, and, and begins to scold me. But then she turns around and scolds the police officer, too, for, well, why you just call me in the first place? Why did you have to lock him up? He, he explains to her that he was basically just trying to teach me a lesson. The rules of engagement are totally different because then they, you had neighborhood precincts. You didn't have just district headquarters. So he took me to the neighborhood precinct. I think in the back of his mind, he really thought he was doing me a favor. And maybe he was from his parents' point. And maybe he did because he was a lesson I needed to learn. But uh, you couldn't do that right now where you pull somebody over and uh, take him to the station and tell him, you know, you watch too much television. Don't believe this about you having a phone call and getting this stick and poking it in your ribs, you know. The officers are not trained to do that anymore. And, and, and people would, if people experience that, they're going to be filing huge complaints and lawsuits. Yeah. So uh, there's a different time. There's a different approach to policing at the time. So that's the one that I remember. The others involved, you know, you stop. You, I remember one night we got stopped, and there were four of my friends were in a car. And we had some alcohol in the car, and we were obviously underage. When they stopped us, they made us all get out. They made us all, you know, literally get on the ground, and they patted us down. And then they explained to us afterwards that there was a call about a, an armed robbery, and that we fit the description, and that the car fit the description. And that's why they stopped, and then they let us go. But in spite of those experiences, I never really was one of those folks that really had a lot of anger toward the police. I always thought, you know, as a teenager, it was kind of a cat and mouse game. You know, you speed down the street, you hope you don't get caught, you know. You're at a party and people are smoking pot and you hope the cops don't show up. So that was my general experience as a young man. So, you know, as a young adult, I didn't have a lot of angst towards the one way or the other. And I had friends who were police who had decided to go into police work. So, you know, I, I guess I came out of that experience pretty, fairly neutral about my perceptions about police. But then, uh, interested enough, 
after pretty much failing as a as a clinical psychologist, I was <laughs> another whole storyline. I ended up working at a criminal justice state planning agency. And my first assignment was to work with the Washington DC Metropolitan Police Department as a statistician. And for the next 11 years, literally, I, I did crime analysis and I did statistical analysis for the Metropolitan Police Department. Ended up writing lots of reports and studies. And uh, that's when I became really familiar with uh, with police work. And it was those experiences, those early experiences that certainly helped shape my thinking and set my career path. It was at a time when we were experiencing this tremendous problem with homicides. The crack cocaine epidemic had come to Washington and we had gangs who were coming down from New York and they were competing with local gangs. And we had this incredible spike in homicides, same time that these semi-automatic weapons became available to them. So out of nowhere, we started having these major gun battles on our streets with these kids using these semi-automatic weapons and shooting each other at a horrendous rate. It sort of reminds me a little bit of what we've seen in Chicago over the last few years. But the, here I was, the, the criminal justice statistician who was tracking all this. And we did a couple of special studies on, on homicides in the District of Columbia. I remember one story in particular where the current Barry at the time was having some political problems with crime because the crime rate was so high in DC. And so uh, I was the one who was delivering him monthly, you know, updates on, on the crime numbers. And so uh, we had a way of kind of spinning things. We may experience an increase in homicides in a particular month or a particular year, but how we would describe it was the rate of increase decreased last year. <laughs> I mean, just a matter of words. I learned the power of numbers, but I learned the power of how you frame those numbers and what kind of perception that creates. I put together a table once because the FBI wouldn't do this. Where we would take the population and take the number of homicides and, and, and calculate it per capita rate and rank the cities. The FBI gave me the raw numbers, but it would never do that, uh, you know, that kind of table for obvious reasons. Well, I went and produced that table. And lo and behold, we found out that Atlanta, it's part of our problems, Atlanta actually had a higher homicide rate. So the mayor couldn't wait to get this information out. So we do a press release, <laughs> you know, tallying Atlanta now as the, as the homicide capital of the country. Needless to say, we got phone calls from Georgia <laughs> complaining vociferously about this news release that we did and this table that we produced. Andy Young was actually the mayor of Atlanta at the time and running for governor, and he was particularly irked by what we did. But anyway, that, that led eventually to my working at the city administrator's office where I became involved with public safety coordination and became involved with looking at citywide efforts to, you know, to reduce crime and eventually became the director of the Office of Emergency Preparedness and Homeland Security for D.C. and was put in charge of some crime task forces. And it's at that time, by the way, that I became familiar with an up-and-coming commander named Rodney Monroe. <laughs> and uh, one of the tasks that the current mayor, that was Mayor uh, Pratt uh, uh, at the time, she tasked me with setting up some citywide task forces and also to manage the juvenile justice advisory group teams. And so I got Rodney to uh, actually serve as chair of my juvenile justice advisory group. <laughs> so that was my first working experience with Rodney Monroe. But I knew of his reputation. He was one of those guys who, uh, he was a policeman's policeman. He was on the SWAT team. He had the reputation of being first in line, first one through the door. 
that was Rodney. And see, he was really well regarded by his other officers as being, you know, he had, he showed those leadership skills even as a as a younger officer. So this is when I first got tangled up with trying to figure out this crime problem. Because now it was my responsibility to help figure out how to how to reduce these horrendous homicide rates. And we had figured out that we couldn't arrest our way out, out of this situation. And we weren't getting cooperation from the community. They were terribly, they were intimidated by these gangs and fearful. They didn't trust the police. And so we had to come up with some really kind of creative solutions. We went into every single school. We got folks who were victim who had been victimized by homicides. We had them come and speak to kids and tell them their story about how they lost loved ones and what it meant to them, trying to personalize it. We went to the business community and raised reward money and we set up, you know, tip lines. I remember one, you know, we were in one school and we were explaining to these kids that look, no one wants these shooters on the streets because they could end up shooting your brother, your mother, your sister. That's how bad it was. So look, here's an anonymous tip line. You give us information that allows us to get these shooters off the streets, we will pay you money. We'll find a way to reward you because we'd raise funds. And they were so distrustful. They were telling us, well, we can't trust. It seems like every time someone shares information with police, it gets back to the gangbangers who come and, and, and retaliate against us. It was this mountain of mistrust out there. And so uh, we went and put up signs all over town, thou shalt not kill. We worked with the, with the faith-based community. We held marches and we were just persistent. So we had roving leaders, we called them. These were street workers who would go out and try to mediate beasts between gangs and try to cut off problems before they could occur. And we were trying anything and everything because the slaughter on the streets is something that none of us really could tolerate. And it was a tremendous amount of pressure and you can imagine on the on the mayor who in turn put lots of pressure on us to try to solve it. So that's when I first really started trying to tackle these problems. One of the programs that they put me in charge of was a demonstration project called Weed and Seed. It was a, a Bush initiative and they had picked uh, 16 cities as pilots and Washington DC is one of the cities. And so they put, we had three weed and seed sites in DC and I was put in charge of those sites in DC. And that's when I first met people from DOJ who were running this program at the time. And uh, that's when I first got, got involved with Eric Holder, who was actually the U.S. attorney for D.C. And the program was run through the U.S. attorney's offices. Mary Lou Leary was his assistant at the time. So I worked with both of them in getting the Sweden Sea program started. Well, the rest became sort of history. When I left D.C. government, I went to the Department of Justice. And guess what they put me in charge of? <laughs> the National Weed and Seed Program. And so, so they're now is responsible for developing these, um, basically these police community collaboratives. We would target particular neighborhoods and these were neighborhoods that experienced high levels of crime. And we would go in and set up these steering committees comprised of community stakeholders, community residents and local police. We would give them money that they could set up a budget for, and they could spend the money for police overtime, which the officers loved, which one of the reasons why they, they really, really supported the program. It was candy to them. But we also provided money for safe havens, after-school programs, and other, and other prevention programs, and community organizing. And uh, what I did was the initial awards were like, I think, $600,000. And I learned from experience working in the grants office that you give a small community that amount of money, the money becomes the focus and not the work. So 
we actually cut the money by two thirds. We started giving these communities $200,000 and started required to put together a really fairly comprehensive plan on how they were gonna use the $200,000, but more importantly, how they were going to address crime and safety issues in their community. And we went at it from, uh, uh, from several perspectives. One was obviously crime suppression. And so some of that money was used to fund officers' time on various task forces. Community policing, we had an arrangement with the, with the newly formed cops office to actually pioneer community policing in these, in these areas. We also talked about youth programs and, and economic development, surprisingly enough. We got involved with community development corporations and helping to support them. So make it, to, to, to kind of shorten this story, by decreasing the amount of money, we were able to expand the number of sites. We eventually got worked up to over 300 sites. The program spread across the country. We increased the budget from about 16 million to about $70 million. And the attorney general gave me the meritorious award, Department of Justice with the meritorious award for our work with WDC. And so that, that became sort of my calling card. To this day, I go into communities. The program has been sort of defunct for 20 years now, but you'd be surprised how many people still remember Weed and Seed, yep. how often I'm still, uh, I go into communities, people still remind me of that, of what we did over the course of the years that we were involved in that program. But what I learned from that experience was that if you give people something to do, if you put police officers together with community stakeholders, you give them something to do, you allow time for relationship to, relationships yep. to build and you give them focus and give them structure, that magical things happen. And people who you would never speak to, people who you never were, you know, you would never figure out you could work with, all of a sudden, they became your partners. And we did that in community after community across this country. And that became really my, you know, I developed to this day, a strong sense that it really is about giving people opportunities to forge these relationships and to work together on common issues and problems and creating a structure where that can happen. So I bring that experience to Albuquerque, to Chicago, wherever I go. It really is about the relationships. You know, I think one of the things that um, also helps to shape my thinking is all those years I spent studying police departments, both, uh, you know, looking at their internal operations, tracking data on them, I did it as a crime analyst and then as an administrator when I had the overall responsibility for, for reviewing their budgets and their programs. I did it from that vantage point as well. And I was always been struck by the fact that you had this paramilitary organization designed in the early 20th century, trying to operate, you know, in the 21st century environment. And I guess one thing I can recall my frustration with having folks in the Metropolitan Police Department who are in charge of finance or in charge of technology and having these officers in charge of these units who had no background in this stuff and limited experience. And as soon as they started learning a little bit about what they're supposed to be doing, they get transferred. And it just, it was a system that just, as an outsider studying this stuff, it made absolutely no sense. This is no way you operate a 21st century organization. And so much of my frustration with, uh, you know, police departments in this day centered from that experience and doing that kind of an analysis of them. 
even carries over to my experience as a monitor and experiencing the frustrations with trying to work with departments that just simply aren't structured or designed to tackle the kinds of challenges and problems they face. I guess most of my lessons were actually learning those 12 to 15 years in 20 years in DC government and working, you know, either directly or indirectly with the Metropolitan Police Department. And those lessons grew as I began to work with departments across the country through my weed and seed programs and later as a consultant and working and studying and advising departments. But just by and large and across the board, the fact that we have these, these structures, that these paramilitary structures that just are not set up to really perform the duties and responsibilities that we ask them to do. And it's just frustrating to watch. And I can recall my, you know, I guess when I was dealing, I was trying to figure out some complicated budget issues one time over at the Metropolitan Police Department, trying to sort out some of the some of the financial issues, looking at the sick time and folks who are on unpaid leave and trying to trace all that down. And I had really nobody on the other end who really had much of an understanding of it because they didn't have the they just simply didn't have the in-house expertise to really address those issues. And the person in charge, well, you know, two months ago he was in charge of the SWAT team. It was in Las Vegas in 2009 when the uh, sheriff called his friend up in D.C. who was head of the cops' office at the time and uh, asked for some assistance. They were having a they had, I think, 25 shootings of unarmed suspects in one year, most of them uh, African-Americans. And uh, the NAACP and the ACLU were threatening to march down the Las Vegas Strip and raise all kinds of sand. And of course, the uh, the powers that be in the city were very concerned about this. And they told the sheriff he needed to go fix this problem. So. Um, that's when uh, I was with CNA at the time, and uh, CNA was hired to go in and to work with the uh, Vegas the Police Department on some reforms, especially around use of force. That's where we started and spread to other areas, but it started with use of force. And I remember, you know, facing that same kind of challenge. You know, you're not going to let us police anymore. You're taking away, uh, you know, you're going to risk, uh, you know, you're going to put officers' safety at risk and trepidation about uh, uh, having their hands tied and then the denial about, no, we, we, there's no bias policing occurring here. But, you know, I think what turned the corner there was winning over the leadership and not, not just the sheriff, but those who serve for the sheriff, those immediately under the sheriff, the captains, lieutenants, the, the commanders, and just spending hours and hours with them and talking through, you know, these things. And then making it results oriented. So, okay, guys, here's our benchmark. Here are our numbers. This is the number of people who, this is the number of excessive use of force complaints you have. This is the number of shootings that you have. Da -da 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 -da. Let's set a benchmark. Three years from now, this is our target. Two years from now, this is our target. You guys go back in that room, <laughs> shut the door, sit down, and you come up with a plan to figure out how to get those numbers from this point to that point. And so that particular group became professionally challenged. They took it on as a challenge. And then they decided to uh, put their heads together and they tried different things. And they some things they tried worked, some things they tried didn't work. 
They tried different ways to bring along their rank and file. Some things worked, some things didn't work, but they stayed with it. And the idea was to, do, it was to become results focused. And so over time, what they would do was they would put, proudly put up their numbers every month. January, we only had, you know, three officer involved shootings. On February, we only had two of So it became a focus of the department and a source of pride as they began to watch those complaint, use of force complaints drop and those shootings drop. And it became almost a department obsession. And then over time, they were able to actually change the culture. And much of what happened 15 years ago is, you know, is no longer... And those changes have become institutionalized in that, in that department. And now it's one of the more forward-thinking departments. But it was getting the buy-in from the uh, leadership and setting specific goals and then letting those department members take the lead in figuring out how to achieve those goals. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There, you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.